the, the, the cool thing about the mindset thing too is it's something that can be trained. You know, you can train your mind through whether it's uh, fitness, whether it's different aspects of life to kind of help you with that too. You know, like when I was younger, it was a lot more difficult for me to not see deer or to think that I was doing something wrong, but you just have to, you know, train your mind for that. And then eventually you just realize you're doing the right thing. You know, I have a lot of guys that'll reach out to me because they are on a deer and then it disappears, right? And that's the thing that I think becomes a little bit common is everybody's running trail cameras, everybody's doing the scouting thing, but not everybody is anticipating the shift that will happen. And so having the backup plans based on that anticipation kind of puts you ahead of, ahead of the game a little bit. So my favorite time of year would be the first week of season or the last week of season in Ohio, which is late January generally. Both of those, they seem to be on the same pattern. Basically, it's very bed to food and there's not a lot of uh, hunter pressure out there. So it's a lot easier to, if you have your scouting done, find those little pockets where they're traveling. You already know where the beds are at based on wind and all the conditions we've talked about. And it seems like if you have that dialed, you generally are gonna get a pretty good opportunity. Let's say I wanted to go to Kentucky this year, mid-October. I would really focus on those hard to access areas. I would try to focus on what I thought was really good bedding cover. And then I would try to find a food source nearby that has some good sign on it and, and just start there. You know, maybe, maybe it would take me a few more days to get it dialed in, but I feel like you could still have that approach and then have some successful hunts within a decently short period of time. Welcome to Days of the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast. I'm going into my 15th year of podcasting. Can't believe it's been that long. I want to thank you all for helping me keep this fresh and staying motivated to bring you new content, etc. It hasn't been easy, but uh, it helps me fuel my own passion for hunting. Speaking of helping me keep this going, please go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags and use promo code John Stallone, all one word, to save 20%. And lastly, if you could go to Howlful Wildlife and become a member. We have partnered with Go Hunt. So now you could get your cake and eat it too. What, I, what do I mean by this? Well, you can go to Go Hunt and if you look at their insider full subscription, it's $149. And with the insider, you get the Explorer as well. So we have both packages, but Explorer is, is their mapping software and it's completely dedicated just to hunting. You know, it's got the public and private land boundaries, offline maps, 3D, point tracker, and all the Western states are included. It's a, it's a great tool. So you get that plus with the Insider, you get the advanced filtering and search tools, industry leading draw odds, unit profiles, and uh, easy to read state regulation overviews and species profiles and expert insights and all this exclusive content plus monthly giveaways. So the Go Hunt Insider subscription is an awesome deal, right? But it's $149 a year. And if you've been on the fence and didn't know you, if you wanted to spend that $149, let me tell you, it's really worth it, but we're gonna make it even sexier for you because if you come to Howlful Wildlife's site and you go to our membership portal and purchase a insider or a explorer package, you not only get a free subscription to go hunt and get all those awesome benefits that we talked about, but you get all the benefits of becoming a Howlful Wildlife member. And that includes our discounts with our partners, 20% or more with our partners. You are automatically included in the Howlful Wildlife giveaway, monthly giveaways for gear and hunt giveaways for the year. Plus, as a 501c3, your portion of your membership is tax deductible and you're helping out a great cause. Alpha Wildlife is out there advocating for the hunter and helping educate the non-hunting public so that uh, we can keep doing this for, for perpetuity here and so that our kids and our grandkids can enjoy it. And uh, it's a really great system and we're super thankful that uh, Go Hunt jumped on board with us. And um, it's a great way to support Alpha Wildlife. It's a great way to get 
awesome tools that you will use. I use GoHunt Insider all the time. I've been a member for a very long time and it's how I get a lot of my tags by doing the research through there. And now you're getting extra stuff with it. So it's a great, great system. So go check it out. Become a member today. And uh, let's roll into this next episode. Thanks. Hi, welcome to Days in the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Today, uh, we are going to talk to Jake Bush and uh, pick his brain a little bit about uh, hunting big whitetail. What's going on, man? Hey, John. Thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I was very intrigued by what you do because it re- in, in some aspects it reminds me of me a lot and I've really wanted to see if I could draw some, you know, similarities and, you know, come to, a, to see if what you, it is that you do, if it's kind of what I do, because one of the things when, when we first kind of chatted, um, you don't have a lot of time, right? Which is the same for me. I know a lot of guys that kill like really big bucks out there are usually the guys that are spending a crap ton of time in the field and patterning them and, and learning the, you know, the ins and outs. And then they target a buck and they go for it. But you are like me in the sense where you kind of live your season like a week at a time, right? It's like, I'm going to go out of state. I got a week to get it done, maybe 10 days, whatever. And I got to make it happen. And, um, I saw that you kind of did that a little bit, right? So I just wanted to kind of, well, before we get into all that, but let, let's, let's get a little rundown about yourself and what you do and, and kind of how you fit into this, but the puzzle here. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with that. I, uh, spend a lot of time out of state as well. And I definitely see more of that aspect out of state, you know, whether it's Kansas or out Montana elk hunting or, uh, New York, kind of all around the country, but, um, I grew up in southwestern New York. I planted my roots there for a few years after the service, and I decided that uh, I just wanted to chase some bigger deer and kind of have a little more adventure in my life. So three years ago, I sold my house and quit my job and uh, moved down to southern Ohio and decided to just really chase big bucks on public land for the most part. And I've pretty much been doing that ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. I've been to Ohio once for hunting. I did not get a deer. Um, but I remember seeing a bunch of dead, a bunch of dead deer on the side of the road, like more than I had ever seen ever. And I was like, Oh my God. I mean, I should be seeing a lot more deer from the stand. I only hunted it for like three days, but I always had a lot of friends from back East that would travel, go, you know, I'm from New York as well, but I'm from Long Island. And, uh, they would they would travel to you know Ohio, and a bunch of guys I used to share. They used to actually come and hunt on a lease I had in uh, in Illinois too. Used to go to Ohio, and they was like, "Yeah, you need to go to Ohio. Ohio's the place, man." And um, yeah, I just never, uh, I never really made it happen. I, <laughs> I I got out there for a couple of days once just because it was uh, like a transition for I was doing something with uh, some business thing, and I. Uh, I was like, all right, let me let me spend a couple. I'm gonna be there. Let me spend a couple of days to go hunting. But I didn't really put a whole lot into it. But I could tell it's a great place to go hunting. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity here. Like you said, you don't really see a whole lot of deer. There's just some giants. You know, like I would say in a regular season, say I hunt 15 days out of the season, I might see five to eight deer total. So I just, you know, expect to not see a deer unless it's the one that you're after pretty much. Wow. Yeah. And that could be tough for people. Like I, I kind of have that here in Arizona where, I mean, you can sit in a blind and not see a deer for like three days or sit in a tree stand, even in, 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 uh, you know, some of the pine forests and stuff like that. And you can just go days and days without seeing a deer. And you're like, Oh my God, this is brutal. But by, you know, eventually, if you put the time in that, that right buck's going to come, come in, you know, it's like anything else, you know, there's no guarantees, but for sure there's a, an advantage, I guess, to, to just having that mindset 
of being able to put the time in because if you don't have that if you don't put the time in it's not one of those places where you can be like oh yeah i'm just gonna go i'm gonna go sit for today and then i'll come back in a week and i'll put another day in and it's got to be like you got to be there for for that one time where he decides he wants to come bopping in you know but Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's the, the, the cool thing about the mindset thing too, is it's something that can be trained. You know, you can train your mind through whether it's, uh, fitness, whether it's different aspects of life to kind of help you with that too. You know, like when I was younger, it was a lot more difficult for me to not see deer or to think that I was doing something wrong, but you just have to, you know, train your mind for that. And then eventually you just realize you're doing the right things. And mm-hmm. like you said, it's all about, yeah, for sure. So, um, why don't you kind of walk us through like your, your philosophy, what goes into your scouting and preparation, you know, in the pursuit of big bucks. Yep. So my scouting in state is pretty elaborate. I, you know, I spend really the entire year kind of focusing on the first couple of days of season. And my goal in my home states to tag out as quickly as possible. You know, Ohio is a one buck state. And that just gives me opportunity to travel around and go to some different areas. So for my home state, it really starts with online scouting, you know, with uh, topography maps, with aerial maps, with even as far as like soil maps for antler genetics. That's something that I focus on quite a bit as well. Okay. And uh, it, it starts there. And then, you know, I'm in hill country here. So I spent a lot of time just going over like, specific leeward ridges i like ridges with a lot of topography i like ridges that are hard to access i like ridges that have maybe old clear cuts in them and i'm trying to just put as many pieces of the puzzle together as possible to give myself the best opportunity in those areas uh once i if you don't if you don't mind if you don't mind me uh, jumping in there because i know people listening are going to be like well, what are those pieces? Like what, 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 you know, you don't have to go through every single one of them, but what's your top five, top 10, even, um, structural features or landscape features that you're looking for that speak big buck to you? So the first one is going to be the absence of hunters, which generally is going to be deeper access, but I've also, found areas that are closer to like the road that are just kind of overlooked uh areas that are maybe that you have to walk around a piece of private land as well like say that it wraps around that Uh, i do pretty good with those and then i would say the next most important feature for me would be leeward ridges so just the side of the ridges that the wind's blowing over i find a lot more specific buck bedding there especially the mature bucks it seems like they really pin down to certain areas uh the third feature for me would be as much food as possible so whether that's a clear cut which also provides cover whether it's uh really good white oak flats in there whether it's private ag within a mile or two from the hills that they can go to at night to feed Mm -hmm. those are really the the biggest key factors and then once i you know like once i have all of those things established i'll really start diving into the specific area where like one of my favorite things to look for very specifically would be a hub system. Mm-hmm. So you'll have the main spine of the ridge that runs north, south, and then you'll have a bunch of sub or micro ridges that run, let's say to the east, because that would be the leeward side here in Ohio, uh, where, where you'll have like multiple drainages and creeks running down that ridge system. They generally meet and create like a, the spoke of a tire of a wheel almost. You'll have like spokes that meet. I find a lot of community scrapes in those areas. I find a lot of tracks down there that I can track back to specific mature deer. And, uh, that really like, that's a place where I run trail cameras to get a lot of inventory of these areas. And, you know, I'm trying to locate as many of these spots as possible, run a lot of trail cameras around the area. So I can really try to determine where there's a buck that I want to target. You know, it's, pretty heavily pressured land. There's not a giant around every corner as much as everybody likes to think there is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I have 10 of these ridge systems, I might only have two bucks that are in that 170 inch class that I'm really looking for to target. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if you uh, don't want to shoot those like 150s and shit, just call me and I will uh, come take care of that problem for you. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're here. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's see, it's really interesting that you, you're saying that, and you, you actually use some of the same terminology that I actually wrote an article some I don't know how many years ago now for Whitetail Magazine called "Mapping Monster Bucks," and that's a lot of the philosophy that I have, and I kind of use that same philosophy everywhere I go. I kind of look at the landscape and almost envision the way it's being used by the animals. And it's, this goes for elk, mule deer, you know, whitetail, the, the whole, the whole gamut and all the things you said, like hit home for me. Like those are real smart, like thought out moves of what to look for in my opinion. But um, yeah, and I think that there's there's something to mature animals acting a certain way. What like almost regardless of species in a certain sense. Uh, I spent a few years in Montana when I was in the service. I was stationed in central Montana, and I remember finding elk bedding in like generally the same areas. You know, like uh, North Slope during hunting season, and he would be in like the drainages high up on the mountains. And it, it almost set up the same way to me as, as what I look for now. And that might've actually played a role in how I scout for whitetails now. Yeah. It's, it's really easy to draw the line from, from animal species to animal species. And it just, it's, um, they need certain things and, you know, real oversimplified, obviously it's cover food, you know, travel corridors, thermal cover and, and water. So it's not that hard to kind of look at it. It, it isn't, it isn't. And it is at the same time. It's like it difficult to necessarily recognize those things, especially when you're looking at a map or topo or whatever, but it's not that hard to really kind of come to the conclusion. Okay. We need this, we need this, and we need this and this. Where are these things in relationship to where I'm hunting? Well, do I have all the pieces of the puzzle? I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have have everything in one specific area because, like you said earlier, you you alluded to, uh, you know, destination feed or uh, you know, ag fields or whatever, where a deer may travel a couple miles to do that because it's a destination place. It's not necessarily a necessity, but it's a place that you know they prefer to be and they would definitely prefer to eat corn or, you know, beans or whatever versus browse. So that ne doesn't necessarily have to be part of the puzzle. But if you have those things, then you know, you're like, okay, well, there's, there's another clue as to where I can look and how, how they're going to use it. Cause how they're going to get from where they're going to bed to there. Like what, what are the, you know, those components, where, where can I pull this out of? So it's a lot of common sense as well as experience too. But, you know, I, I fully agree with your, your philosophy right there, but. Yeah, I agree with everything you said right there too. You pretty much hit the nail on the head. And uh, yeah, I mean, I see the, the same things for the most part. And it's really for me, just a matter of trying to learn the, you know, every animal you can, you can generalize them to a certain extent, but, and then it's learning that specific animal. And that's something that I've really, come to love as well you know they all have their own little tendencies based on certain things or how they like to travel or maybe even the browse that they prefer you know like their specific bedding areas or locations based on wind based on uh, time of year based on leaf cover mm -hmm. there's all those different factors as well that just kind of add to the equation so let me ask you this when you when you have figured out that a buck is using you know the specific spot to bed have you drawn conclusions like where, where you see that, okay, when you got this kind of wind, these kind of conditions, this is where the buck hangs out. When those yes. conditions are different, this is where the buck hangs out. Yes. And that's one of my favorite parts. So I will, when I scout an area, you know, I'll do my map scouting and I'll pick out like general areas where I think they'll be bedded based on all the factors we talked about. And when I go put boots on the ground, I will scout for all those beds and I'll actually, you know, even get down in the beds and I'll see what they can see. I'll see how far away I can set up. I'll see, you know, like, okay, he's bedded on this Northeast facing sub ridge on a Southwest wind. 
and then he shifts 20 feet based on this wind or this wind and he's only on this ridge during the white oak drop and then as soon as the white oaks are dried up he moves three ridges over for the same wind because the chestnut oaks start dropping you know like you start putting those pieces together and then late season he ends up in the clear cut and you try to at least what i'm trying to do is trying to come up with almost exact like ways to get in there and kill him based on those setups so you know generally i'll find myself within 80 to 100 yards of that bed and i'll be i'll set up my tree stand and then i'll wait for him to come down and i'll i'll basically either try to cut off his scrape or try to cut off his food source Mm -hmm. and as long as i'm close enough i have some pretty good encounters that's awesome one of the things that kind of brought me to the biggest realization of what we what you just talked about was and it actually was here in Arizona I would go I used a lot of my my back east whitetail hunting strategies in the beginning here I still I still use them quite a bit but not not to the extent where I did before I would hunt the early season when they were in velvet and I would do all this scouting have trail cameras out you know I'd even go as far as running mineral licks and whatever just having and I'd have just thousands and thousands of pictures and tons of bucks that were on the hit list and and all this stuff going on. And then season would come in and opening weekend and none of those deer would be, were to be found. And then, you know, I drew the, the realization, I came to the conclusion that, well, the hunting pressure changed the way these deer use the, the landscape. And, the conditions may have changed too. And I started looking, I'm like, well, you know, monsoon season really kicks in right when deer season starts. Um, and it, you know, it starts earlier than that, but it, just all these little different factors, like now there's more water, now there's more this, and now there's, you know, more pressure and the, whatever. And, and the conditions change, so they use the landscape differently. And it used to drive me insane because I was like, whoa, you know, where are all these freaking deer? And is knowing recognizing the conditions, right? And taking those conditions and applying them to when you're hunting. Okay, so now I got conditions X, Y, and Z. It's different than when my trail camera was here and I had, you know, A, B, and C. So it, it's, you got to put in a lot, to, to do what you're doing, you got to put in a lot of time actually to figure that stuff out and, and know where, when, how they're using it based on the conditions that you presented with. And that's, that's huge. It doesn't surprise me that you got a bunch of big bucks <laughs> if you're doing that, not at all. Yeah. And what you said makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I have a lot of guys that'll reach out to me because they, they are on a deer and then it disappears. Right. And that's the thing that I think becomes a little bit common as everybody's running trail cameras, everybody's doing the scouting thing, but not everybody is anticipating the shift that will happen. And so having the backup plans based on that anticipation kind of puts you ahead of, ahead of the game a little bit, and especially in a pressured area, you know, like if you already know where that deer is going to be roughly two weeks in a season, but there's a couple other guys that are hunting him that are on the Intel they had two weeks ago that's a huge difference. And I think a big part of that too is being mobile, you know, having a mobile setup, having a mobile tree stand where you can move around a lot more efficiently than let's say a ladder stand, mm-hmm. you know, like that's, that's just a totally different aspect of it. Oh yeah. No, I honestly, I really hate ladder stands. I, I don't know. They're not, they're for me, they're not as comfortable to begin with. I mean, some people would argue with me that they're comf- more comfortable, but I'd prefer hang on over anything. Yeah, me too. And it's just, it, it's almost the adventure side of it too. You know, you're able to hunt more aggressively. You're able to make real-time decisions based on sign, based on everything that you pointed out a couple minutes ago, actually. And it just makes the hunt much more enjoyable for me, knowing that you always have an opportunity to be in the game as opposed to sitting back in a stand somewhere waiting. Right, right. Hey guys, I wanted to take a moment to discuss some really important stuff with you. Take a minute and think hard about what hunting and fishing and the outdoors means to you. Now, I want you to imagine if all of that went away. It's a pretty grim picture, right? 
now that I have your attention. There's a long time narrative out there that has been promoted by the anti-hunting and fishing groups to paint sportsmen and women as villains. We need to stop this narrative. We need to bring the truth to light. So how do we do that? We educate ourselves on the North American model of conservation and the common myths that are pushed out by the animal activists. We take this knowledge and we start communicating with our non-hunting friends, coworkers, and just educate them on the truth. But I really want you to become an expert in your own right because the last thing we want to do is to put out false information or to offend somebody. So it's really important to just fill yourself with knowledge and become, unfortunately, become an activist. You have to become an activist. And I know that's a dirty word, but now more than ever, it's important for us to do that. We need to start planting our own seeds. That way, we develop more people, we turn more people into sympathizers. Because right now, we're faced with these issues where if a anti-hunting bill reaches the ballot, now Halfa Wildlife has been very successful at eliminating that, getting there, but we can't rely on that. Unfortunately, if it gets to the ballot, the anti-hunting, the animal activist groups, animal rights groups, they are in position to launch campaigns to the non-hunting public and they will pump propaganda into urban areas where people don't necessarily know anything about hunting and fill their minds with all kinds of lies and paint pictures of cute and cuddly bears and lions and wolves and paint this terrible picture of you, the hunter, the sportsman, who is the whole reason why these animals are on the landscape. So it is important for us to start in a grassroots effort, start changing the minds and educating the non-hunting public on the truth. That way, if something like this does go to the ballot box, you have possibly created a sympathetic voter for the sportsman. Keep that in mind. Think about it. Thank you very much. Let's get back to the show. So I got a question for you. How do, so okay. you, you've hunted whitetails quite a bit, right? Yes. So I'm, I'm really trying to get into mule deer. Like I've got the bug right now as far as scouting goes and trying to figure out the point system and uh-huh. all of that. Do you think that being an Eastern guy that's primarily focused on whitetails his whole life, do you, how easily can I get in trouble because of my whitetail hunting? You know what I mean? Like, can I really steer myself in the wrong direction pretty quickly? I I don't think so. Honestly, I think sometimes whitetail hunters from, from, you know, the Midwest or the back East have almost an advantage now in, in, in a sense, because over here, the mentality, nobody thinks about scent control at all. And to me, that was always one of the weapons that I had that set me up part from the guys I was hunting with here. Like I had a new set of clothes for every day. Like, listen, I know you're hiking around primarily, especially if you're doing spot and stalk, you know, type hunts, you're hiking around, you're sweating. You're not going to be able to eliminate scent. And you can't even do it when you're sitting in a tree stand. You can't eliminate it, but you can get it down enough that I feel, and I not just feel, I've witnessed it. I've I've notated it many times where my scent control regime bought me that extra time I needed to make a shot. Good example. I was, I glassed up this mule deer in Utah and from across the canyon, made my way all the way over there. And when I got there, I'm like, oh shit, the wind is not doing what it was where I was. And I'm like, now if I pop over the side of this, you know, go over the top of this to go look down to where this mule deer was, I know he was 
he was bedded like with two other bucks, like 40, 50 yards on the other side of this ridge. And I was, you know, I was on one side and they were on the other, but I was down low enough and the wind, the way the wind was blowing, I knew if I kind of, it was blowing so hard and so steady in the same direction that if I didn't line myself up with them, they weren't going to smell me. So I was there, but I'm like, I don't think I'm going to be able to make a shot from this angle. I'm going to have to literally line myself up with them and pop over. And I'm one of those guys that kind of forces everything. I'm not a very patient person. So I'm like, I'm going to do it. And I did that. I lined myself up with them and then I crept over and I popped over and they were, they were right there. And I could see my, like literally their seeds, seed pods and spider webs were like blowing down right to them and right from my back, right to them. And I can tell one of them was catching a nose full of me. He lifted his head and he was kind of looking around, but I had enough time to draw back and then eventually the buck that I was I wanted to shoot, he stood up also because he caught my wind and was looking around. He didn't bust out. He didn't run. He didn't like, you know, what they would normally do because, well, I'll give you my philosophy of why I think so. Anyway, I whiffed the shot. I screwed it up. I missed. But I had the time to make the shot. And I think if I was just one of those guys like, hey, I'm just going to wear the same old stinky ass hat wear the camo I've been wearing all week long, whatever, you know, not showering twice a day, whatever it is that I was doing, you know, or that I do, I should say in the, in the early season, I think they would have just caught a whiff of me and boom, been gone. Cause I've seen it happen before. And my philosophy is that they, obviously they smelled me, they can smell me, but they thought that I was either much further away or that the scent was older, like I already had been through there. Like that's that's what I think goes through a deer's head when they come through something where the where the scent is muted, and it's muted because of the scent control regime that you you know that we do. I think that's a benefit to you. I think your ability to read the sign and read the landscape on how deer are using it is a huge help, especially if you plan on doing some ambush hunting. Now, I've been doing a tactic for years, and I developed this because of that, because of what we're talking about right now, is I call it spot and ambush. Instead of me making a stalk directly to a deer that's bedded or even feeding or whatever, I look at the whole landscape, and I stalk over to where I know I can get to, and I have a good idea that he is going to make his way past me. So I guess in a nutshell, no, I don't think you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And the other thing is too, like there's two other, two other positives, like a guy in the Midwest, most guys that are shooting deer have shot multiple deer, right? And you get more, more at bats, so to speak, that you do when you do in the in the West, where a guy might shoot a buck every couple of years, a guy in the Midwest or back east. I mean, I go back east, I shoot, I go shoot two deer, you know, and fill two tags. So or and and shoot several does. So you have a little more confidence in making a shot. The only thing I see is the range. The range as an outfitter here in Arizona, the where I see is guys coming, they're like, Yeah, I'm good to 40 yards. And I'm like, Yeah, well, 40 yards ain't gonna cut it. You need to be in Arizona, you need to be good to, you know, 70, 80 yards. That's the only thing I would say, like really spend time and being able to shoot from different positions, not just standing from your knees, from your feet, or from your butt and you know drawing back behind a bush and then standing up and shooting, you know, stuff like that. Those are the things that I think guys from the Midwest will lack from somebody who's hunting out West. The ability, it's mostly about ability to shoot. Not that, not that guys in the Midwest don't know how to shoot. It's just putting yourself in a, a uh, scenario that is lifelike where, you know, you're used to shooting from a tree stand. That's, really different 20 30 yard shot 40 yard shot max maybe 
um, that's a lot different than, you know, shooting down downhill in a ridge 60 yards in high winds and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I would say the average shot I have out here is probably absolute max 15 yards and a lot of them are probably closer to that 12 range so yeah that that makes a big difference yeah see like uh, when i go back to new york i have no problem bringing my my recurve like because i know i can control the environment so to speak and i know my shot's going to be under 25 yards and i'm confident with that I would n- I never ever take my recurve running here, like because I know I'm not going to get 25. I'm not that sneaky, and I mean you can for sure, guys, do it all the time. I just I'm not good enough to get that close. Like I don't have the patience, and I'm not sneaky enough and quiet enough to make that happen. So, the, you know, that's I would say practice shooting and practice being sneaky, like sneaking up on the on the family dog creeping around the house you know just becoming light of foot all the time you know so you you can it be as uh, low impact as possible when you're moving through the woods here yeah that makes sense so how are you translating what you're doing back home to going out of state on so i think the a couple things that that helps me quite a bit is determining pressure from maps, you know, like finding those little pockets or those little nooks that might be overlooked. Uh, and then just general idea of how the deer are going to travel through that area. Uh, I went to Kansas last year and I picked out, you know, 15 to 20 areas that I thought had really good potential. I figured were overlooked. And the first 15 of them were actually exactly what everybody else was thinking because I kept finding people everywhere I would go. (laughs) And, uh, day two, I decided to completely switch it up. And I went to an area that just had very few trees. You know, there were a couple dead trees and I actually put my stand in a dead tree, like seven feet off the ground. And I ended up shooting my buck that night at seven yards. So Wow. It was just navigating, uh, really through hunter pressure. The, the mindset to, not let that get you down too. you know, like the first four or five spots that I went to that had multiple guys, that's, that's, that could ruin somebody's hunt if they have the wrong mentality going into it. And I think just that, uh, like perseverance mentality, you know, you're just going to keep going. You can get away from this and you got to just think differently. And what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And then you find that right spot and it just, you know, the magic happens. So those would be the biggest factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, it sounds like since you're a scouting guy, I have an, I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, but when is your favorite time of year to hunt whitetail? So my favorite time of year would be the first week of season mm-hmm. or the last week of season in Ohio, which is late January. Generally, both of those, they seem to be on the same pattern. Basically it's very bed to food, and there's not a lot of uh, hunter pressure out there. So it's a lot easier to, if you have your scouting done, find those little pockets where they're traveling. You already know where the beds are at based on wind and all the conditions we've talked about. And it seems like if you have that dialed, you generally are going to get a pretty good opportunity. Gotcha. What, um, when's opening season in, in Ohio? So, so it depends. It switches a little bit every year a couple days i believe this year it's going to be the 25th or 26th of september september yeah okay so what so that kind of leads me to this like what's the hunting like in you know like the second week of october is that you you guys have that october lull or do you what or is it is the hunting still good if you got your scouting or is it just a piss poor time yeah. to hunt. <laughs> I don't I don't really see a lot of the lull and you know even in New York so over the last let's say 10 years whitetail hunting I generally don't see a whole lot of lull activity because I think that I'm so close to betting. You know like I understand that the deer definitely move less because of pressure and that they might be not they might not be in the same area as they were 2 weeks beforehand because food sources are changing that time of year as well. 
But if you have all of that dialed, uh, you're going to be close to the bedding still. And if you know generally what food sources they're going to hit, or you have the ability to find the hot food source like in real time, you're going to be on the deer as long as you don't get seen, don't get smelled or heard. It seems like. Right. I, um, I kind of share that philosophy. I've, I should I say I share that philosophy in at least in New York I've killed most of my bucks in that quote unquote uh, October lull period or just before the rut really kicks in uh, you know before uh, Halloween or or any of that but I did go to Missouri my god man it's probably five years ago already now and we went right around that second week and man i could not buy a buck to save my life saw a few does um i mean i could have shot several does actually but and bunch turkey never never really put eyes on any mature bucks just a couple of you know spikes and little forkies and stuff like that but nothing nothing crazy um nothing that i would shoot anyway and that was the first time that I ever had experienced. And I try to think how many other places have I been in October around that time to hunt whitetail. And I realized that I'd never really traveled all that much to go whitetail hunting. I, I did go once in, in, in Kentucky, but I did get a deer there, but I had, I had prime private land that for that one, you know, it was, I had, ag fields and a lot of um you know destination stuff for deer to go to that i can pattern them on quickly but i i don't know i don't know that i hunted it so i i can never really say that this october low wasn't a uh, a factor you know what i'm saying so going back to what i was just saying I, so it have you have you hunted a bunch out of state during that time period or is it that's primarily you're still you know well, you, you did see New York because you used to live there, but New York and Ohio, same. Yeah, for the most part, it's the same. And I, those two places I'm biased about because I scout them so much. So, right, right. Uh, you know, generally when I'm traveling out of state, I'm going to try to do it around those core times that every, you know, either pre-rut or during the rut or even like the third week of November-ish. But it's it's generally within that four-week time period. So I don't have a ton of lull experience in different states that I haven't scouted Mm -hmm. and I can I can definitely see how it could be a factor if you don't have your areas dialed in or if you're out of state because you just don't have you know the the food the bedding the all that all that dialed in so yeah I can I can understand that side of it for sure Mm -hmm. I still think that if I was to let's say I wanted to go to Kentucky this year mid-October I would really focus on those hard to access areas. I would try to focus on what I thought was really good bedding cover. And then I would try to find a food source nearby that has some good sign on it and and just start there. You know, maybe, maybe it would take me a few more days to get it dialed in, but I feel like you could still have that approach and then have some successful hunts within a decently short period of time. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I'd be curious to see, like, if you just looked at your formula and and applied it and like purposely went during that time to see how well it would work. Because I, other than that one outlier, like I said, when I went to Missouri, I don't really know. I don't know that. I still feel. I'm like you. I feel confident that if I did my normal deal, what I do in New York, I should be able to make it happen. Even though I didn't in Missouri that that one year, I. I don't know. I like, I'd like to know because that for me, that time of year in my, in my life right now seems to be the best time, time frame that I can actually go do that. Cause in early September or not early September, but mid September to late September, I'm home hunting elk, right? Yep. In the end of October, I'm usually go back to Long Island and I might do some hunting there. And then when I get back from that, that beginning of the rut, that, you know, first week of November for about 10 days, I'm typically in South, South Dakota. 
and we're hunting mule deer and whitetail there during the rut. And I guide there, and uh, I also hunt for myself as well while I'm there. So the only opening I ever have is in October, and I'm like, I want to go. Like I have, I have a crap ton of points in Kansas. I got a, I got where is else? Iowa. I have point. Like I, I want to go and hunt some of these other states that I've never hunted. I've hunted a lot. I've hunted probably, I want to say, sixteen different states for for uh, whitetail. But I, I'd love to go do a hunt somewhere. And I just, I'm always like, ah, man, it's not that, that's like a crappy time of year to go. Like, I don't want to go and burn a get out of jail free card with the wife and, uh, and whatnot and just not have a, a good experience, you know? So it's one of those things I want to, I want to either dial it in or possibly, uh, I don't know. I don't know. One of these years, maybe I just need to give up going to South Dakota and go just kill a deer somewhere else. But anyway. Yeah. And it would be interesting to see based on terrain, how much success you would have that time of year too. You know, like maybe hardwoods, for example, would be a little more difficult because you have to have like close observation or you have to really be dialed in where maybe if you could glass, you know, up to a half mile or three quarters of a mile into ag fields or just open prairie, you might have a better chance of putting eyes on a good deer. That might be a better tactic as well. Right, right, right. Cool. So I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind uh, taking us through one of your one of your favorite hunts, and uh, you know maybe something that has like where you kind of learned about whitetail where you kind of change the way you hunt or just something that maybe you incorporated into your hunting style because of that hunt? Yeah. So, uh, three years ago when I first moved to Ohio, I moved down here in June. So I missed like the winter slash spring scouting mm-hmm. time that I really focus on. And I really had to just summer scout and I only had limited amount of cameras. I only ran like maybe five cameras that year or something like that. And, uh, I did, I had the same mentality as far as scouting in the Hills, but there was a lot of things that I was just off on, you know, this was my first time in Ohio. It was a lot of different things going into that. And, uh, so I ran cameras and I had some really good bucks on camera right away, but I just, as the summer was progressing, I just kept scouting a little bit more and a little bit more. And up to that point, I had either really hunted in like the ag of New York or in the mountains in New York. So there was no in between, you know, I didn't have any rolling hills that fed out into ag where I could have like the typical leeward bedding on these ridges and they dumped down at night to food sources Mm -hmm. that really didn't exist for me. So I found this spot that, uh, set up, you know, leeward ridges. And I remember driving by it and I, it wasn't on my radar at all. And I remember driving by it and it was just this beautiful bean field at the time. And I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, they have to be coming out to this at night. Like they have to be. So I went and scouted it in really late. It was like maybe the first week of September, maybe even the second week of September. And, you know, generally I wouldn't even be out in the woods that time of year, but I had to be because I didn't have a choice. You know, I was trying to learn as much as possible in a short period of time. So I went in and scouted and I didn't find a lot of sign at all until one ridge that had, it was like one hub system, like I was talking about that had a Creek running through it. And it seemed like all the sign was there. And maybe that was due to dry conditions in the summer and all the deer wanted to be around the water and they were willing to travel a little bit further to the, the ag, that, that private ag. And I put a camera in there and then, um, I was walking up a ridge and I remember looking up on the ridge and this was a shock to me because being from New York, there's just not a lot of rubs up there, but I found this like giant rub for me at the time fresh. Mm -hmm. And this was like right as they were shedding velvet. And so, you know, it looked like a flag out in the woods. I was like, I got to go look at that, like see what's going on. And it was on a leeward point, like halfway up the ridge. And so I assumed there might be good bedding on top of that point. Well, as I walked to the rub, I I saw a scrape underneath an oak tree and I walked over to that scrape and I jumped up the biggest buck I'd ever seen in my life at that point. (laughs) 
And so I had a decent idea of what I wanted to do to target that deer. I got out of there for the day and then the opening day season, I just didn't have the right wind. So I stayed out of that area. And the second day of season, I, uh, I had the right wind, but it was really hot. So it was 95, 96 degrees here, which is really hot in Ohio. I mean, the deer, (laughs) you would think the deer would shot right down. I know that they feed less out in the open. Uh, but that wasn't what I saw that night at all. So I decided to go for it. You know, I put my stand on my back. I hiked in roughly three quarters of a mile and hung my stand. I had my stand set at probably three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And at three thirty, this buck came down to hit that white oak tree on his way to what I'm assuming was the Creek to get a drink. And I shot him at 33 yards <laughs> and he was uh, 186 inches on public. Awesome. That's awesome. Yep. And there was a lot of, a lot of dumb luck with a buck that big being in there, but it was a really cool experience. And it taught me a lot about not waiting for the proper conditions. If you're aggressive enough, you know, if you're close enough to the beds, if you're close enough to the food source, I I really don't think that he has an, a huge impact on that. If you're close enough. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, where can our listeners uh, find out more about you? So I do have an Instagram. It's the Jake Bush. And uh, I do have videos of all of the hunts over the last three years on YouTube at Legends of the Hunt. Uh, a couple, There's a Kansas hunt. There's a bunch of Ohio hunts on there. So, um, And I'm on Facebook too, just Jake Bush. Awesome, man. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge with us. Definitely... Uh, have to get you back on again and then we'll do we'll do some more stories and whatnot and uh and have our listeners kind of get some tidbits from from past experiences yeah sounds good john thanks for having me on absolutely thank you hey guys thanks for checking out the show really appreciate you keep those reviews and those comments coming helps us keep this free do me a favor, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Use promo code John Stallone to save 20%, all one word, and check out Howl for Wildlife. Thank you very much, and we'll catch you on the next show.